Good morning, everyone. Good to see you all. Well, we're in the very critical section in the book of Ephesians where the Apostle Paul begins this, and we just got started last week, uh, what the walk of wisdom looks like, and the salient element in that is uh, being filled with the Spirit. So let me bring up all the slides and everything, and we'll kind of get started. And uh, just a reminder to you, one of the major themes of the book of Ephesians, it seems to me, is that sound doctrine produces godly living. So uh, you've seen this now, I guess, several dozen times, but we've been looking at, and the way I outline the, the last three chapters is around the key term walk. It seems to me there are five different categories of the walk of the believer that Paul itemizes here in the book. And a reminder, too, and this is a doctrinal uh, reminder, but it's an important one. These three chapters have everything to do with sanctification. They are about the believer's walk. This is not how you become a Christian. This is not about how you become justified. This is what the process of sanctification looks like, as we've talked many times before. And this final category, which we began last week, I've called the walk of wisdom, Again, because he uses the term walk, not as unwise, but as wise, you see there in uh, verse 15. And then he uh, denominates three key aspects or characteristics of this walk, qualities of this walk. Someone who takes advantage of every opportunity, a stewardship of time, seeing that not just how you manage your 24 hours, but every opportunity that is a part of that. Second, the understand what the will of the Lord is, which we talked about that last week. Much of God's will for our lives is already revealed. It's in the Word of God. And then thirdly is where we left off last week, and it's a present continuous imperative. Be in the process of being filled with the Spirit. And I did, I see that at the bottom of the slide there. I, I think I remember talking a bit that do not ever confuse baptism of the Holy Spirit with filling of the Holy Spirit. They're two totally different ministries of the Spirit of God. Baptism is, it doesn't have anything to do with the ordinance of baptism. It's the Spirit placing us into identifying us with the church or placed into the body of Christ. And filling of the Spirit is what he's talking about here. And he makes a comparison, an analogy actually, between being drunk with wine, where obviously the alcohol is controlling your life, and being filled with the Spirit, where the Spirit is controlling your life. And then, as we saw in the remaining part of this paragraph, he itemizes out three key results of the uh, being under the control of the Spirit. And again, fill means control. And it affects our worship, a spirit of thankfulness, and then finally, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. You have a copy of this in your notes on page 11, and it, it does nicely summarize how everything flows from being controlled or being filled with the Spirit. And so you can just look at that. That's a nice summary. And that matter of being in subject or being submission to one another is what begins to impact the last part which begins in verse 22 and ends with chapter 6 okay. into verse 10. And these three categories are, for the most part, 
the categories of our relationships, marriage, parent to children, and then the workplace, which is the third one. So that's how we're going to kind of look at this. And this submitting to one another, uh, or if you take it as a participle, if you take it as a noun submission, that really does need to be defined. And so what I did on this slide, and Glenn sent you an updated copy of my packet of slides that I want you to be able to have, uh, this is included in that, so you have a copy of this. But I want to step back for just a bit, and I want to talk about this matter of submission. Because one of the arguments I would make, and I, I've taught this a number of times, is that submission is really the lifestyle of the believer. It is not unique only to marriage. It is the whole lifestyle of the believer. So let's take a look at sort of a working de <clears throat> definition of submission. Submission is an attitude of life. And that little phrase is really, really important. It's an attitude of life that involves humility, obedience, and compliance. It comprises an attitude toward all forms of authority in our lives. And so <clears throat> I want to come back to what I put in brackets there in a minute. But just look, and I've highlighted only one reference for each one of these. There are multiple references. But first of all, submission to God. That's all over the Bible. <laughs> That's every chapter, every book of the Bible. So it's not, so I'm just, if I were going to write something, I said, see the Bible. <laughs> but submission to God is just a, a, a dynamic of what it means to walk with God. And again, that humility, obedience, and compliance uh, in coming under the authority of God. The second one is submission to the state. These are in no particular order. I did choose submission to God as first, but the rest are in no particular order. Submission to the state, that is Paul's argument in Romans 13, verses 1 through 7. We are to, in humility, obedience, and compliance, we walk in obedience to the state. To, uh, submission to all levels of authority, and that, that would involve just about everything in our lives. In the Colossians passage, for example, Colossians 3.22 through the beginning of chapter 4, that is submission within the employer-employee relationship. Now, in the ancient world, that was master to slave, and we've talked about that before, so I'm not going to go through all that again, but you have to understand slave in the context of the ancient world, not pre-Civil War chattel racial slavery in the South. It's, it's not quite the same idea, but anyway... So wherever there's authority, we're to submit to that. Submit to the authority uh, leaders of your local church. Hebrews chapter 13 is very important that we are to come under the authority in humility, obedience, and compliance to the leaders of our church. And then as we just studied last week, submission to one another, because we are those one another passages in the New Testament. We're in this together. And that submission is out of humility and obedience and compliance with the directors of God, we're encouraging and helping and bringing one another along. And then finally, which is what we will address here in just a minute, submission within the marriage relationship. Now, I want to go back to that bracket there. In terms of human authority, the principle the Bible does lay out for us is we submit obedience, compliance, we submit until it's a sin to submit. Now, this 
this too needs a little bit of development, but I think you know what I mean. Let's use the most obvious example, number two, the mission to the state. Uh, we, we obey the laws of the state. We, in humility and compliance, we come under its authority until the state commands that we do something that's clearly a sin. This was one of the challenges, and I'm sure you're familiar with that. This is one of the challenges in the Nuremberg trials after World War II, when the Allies put on trial the major Nazi leaders who had been captured. Many of them used the argument, well, we were just obeying authority, and the Nuremberg court did not accept that. If your government is asking you to do something immoral or illegal, you are not under authority to obey that. Now, you may have to suffer consequences. They didn't accept that. And in terms of the Bible, you look at Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 5, Peter and John are commanded, do not preach Christ in Jerusalem. They go out and preach Christ in Jerusalem. They're arrested, put in jail. But that, that issue of submission to the state is not an absolute. Just as in a marriage relationship, if we'll use this as an example, if a husband um, asks his wife, orders his wife, commands his wife to do something illegal, honey, I want you to shoplift tonight. We're short on cash when you go to the store. Well, she is under no authority to obey that. I mean, on and on and on. I mean, you, every one of these examples, you could use an illustration. So I just want to step back and make sure that we're clear on what submission means as an aspect of the Christian lifestyle, which, as we already know, the Holy Spirit enables us, empowers us to submit in these various relationships, because that's what being filled with the Spirit means. So, and the second thing I just wanted to clarify is that this is not an absolute in the sense that if the authority under which you are submitting commands that you do something illegal or immoral, in other words, to sin, you are not under authority to do that. You're not under obligation to do that. And so that then this little chart just illustrates how Paul's going to do this. He's going to talk about three categories of this submission. First of all, submission in marriage, uh, 22 through 33 of chapter 5. Then parent-child relationships in Ephesians 6, 1 through 4. And then in 6, 5 through 9, the workplace, which in the ancient world was slave to, to, to uh, a master. In, the, in our century, it would be employer and employee. All right, now, before we move on, do you have any questions about this matter of submission? As, as one, a lifestyle, and two, how extensive the call of submission is for the believer. It is not only in marriage. It is across every area of our lives for the most part. Okay, you with me on this? Any questions? Okay, that's good. If, if that means you are with me, <laughs> then what I want to do is shift now to verse 22, where the Apostle Paul begins to talk about the marriage relationship. <clears throat> now, if I were teaching this 25 years ago, this wouldn't be a particularly provocative or incendiary passage of Scripture. In 2021, verses 23 and 24 are explosive. 
they're incendiary, they, they are provocative, they raise all kinds of issues that uh, unfortunately, in, in my view, at least most of them are outside of what Paul is really trying to say here. So as we get started, I want to make a couple of introductory comments as, as well. What Paul is defining here in verses 22 through 33 are the role relationships in marriage. He is not saying anything in this passage about the spiritual situation of a wife or a husband. He is not saying anything about the superiority of one over the other, because I want to remind you of something. The Bible declares forcefully equality of male and female, equality of the wife and the husband in the marriage relationship. Three illustrations of that. Illustration number one, the wife and the husband are equal as image bearers of God. In Genesis 1.26 and following, God says, let us create man in our image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them in his image. So right there, it's extremely clear. There's no ambiguity. There's no lack of clarity. Men and women share, husbands and wives share in being equally in the image of God. I am not more in the image of God than my wife Peggy, nor is she more in the image of God than I. We're equal in that status. That defines the worth and dignity of human beings Male and female, he created them. Secondly, at the cross, we're spiritually equal. Galatians 3.28, in Christ, there's neither Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or, or, or free. And so you, you see, again, that genuine biblical Christianity affirms the absolute spiritual equality of male and female, of man and woman, of husband and wife. And then thirdly, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse, um, I think it's verse 7, Paul, or excuse me, here, Peter says that husbands under, seek to understand your wives because she is a joint heir with Christ with you. And so that's the third area of equality. We are joint heirs with Christ, male and female. Now, whatever that means, there's a lot of discussion about that throughout the New Testament, but to be a joint heir with Christ, you share that with your wife or, or male and female, men and women in Christ share that. So this is not about equality. Be, before we dig into this, you've got to remember that the Bible stipulates with, with, with no ambiguity at all that men and women are equal as image bearers, before the cross, and as joint heirs. So you have equality, but you have different role responsibilities in the various institutions that God has created. And here are the role responsibilities within the marriage, the role responsibility of the wife, the role responsibility of the husband. And as I put in brackets there at the top of this slide, I believe this is rather remarkable, and it seems to me instructive. There are three verses that detail the role responsibility of the wife. There are nine verses 
that detail the role responsibilities of the husband. That seems to me to be important. So if you look at this, let's read this, and then I'll go back and, and kind of take it apart. First of all, verses 22, 23, and 24, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the Lord is, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, who, who uh, is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now, again, <laughs> you have that word sub submit as a verb or submission as a noun that is very controversial and very difficult today because immediately, right out of the chute, when this verse is read or when people talk about submission, many argue that implies inferiority. That implies that the wife is less than her husband. That is not true. That is misunderstanding the point. Let's think about it this way. To whom does God assign primary responsibility for leadership in the home? If you go back, as Paul does here, and he will do it in a number of other places, he takes us back to the creation ordinance of God. You're going to see that in verse 31. He's going to take us back to creation. And when God does his creating work in Genesis 1 and 2, and then in Genesis 3, when horribly, and it's, it's one of the most depressing chapters in the Bible, Adam and Eve join the rebellion against God, then God, whom does God blame for this breakdown? Whom does God blame for the disobedience to his command, which he gives to Adam and to Eve? The day you eat of the knowledge, tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. Well, if you go to Romans chapter 5, verse 12, and really the whole argument of Romans chapter 5, Eve is not even mentioned. Adam is the highlight. Adam is the one who sinned. Eve was deceived. Adam willfully and intentionally took of the fruit. She was deceived by Satan. Adam, standing right by her, willingly took and intentionally defied God. And so I say that because God gives primary responsibility to the husband. And indeed, you see that in the primary responsibility guide assigns in various institutions, which we are not going to talk about in this particular class, but this importance of whom does God assign primary responsibility, and when things break down, whom does God hold accountable? And so you have this very important role responsibility, but there are two key phrases. Actually, one is a word and the other is a phrase. The word is submit, and the phrase, as to the Lord, as Christ, as the church submits to Christ. Now you have that little, that little particle, as, A-S, which is setting up a comparative analogy. You want to know what this looks like? 
look at the as phrases. All right, first of all, let's talk about the matter of submission or the verb to submit. Building off of our definition and what I was talking about a few moments ago about submission being the lifestyle of a believer, what does submission within the family relationship look like for the wife? I have defined, I actually borrowed this from John Piper, but I have defined it as a disposition to yield and an inclination to follow her husband. Now we're going to see what the husband's responsibilities are in the nine verses that are assigned to him in verse 25 through 33. But now just think about that, because in a marriage relationship, someone leads, someone has primary responsibility before God. Someone God holds accountable in a primary sense of accountability. This passage is teaching us it is the husband that is to lead. And as we're going to see in just a moment, that kind of leadership is servant leadership. You do not lead by barking orders and hammering your wife into submission. You lead by serving. It is servant leadership. You lead by by, by serving and loving and holding up as, as dignified and respect the nobility of your wife. It is not a dictatorial type of leading. It is how Jesus Christ led. Jesus is not a dictator over his church. He is a loving servant who washed his disciples' feet, see John 13. And so you see now, a wife's disposition is to yield to that servant leadership. A wife's inclination is to follow that servant leadership. Now, Paul says, now I want you to understand that the model for this is Jesus. So as a wife has that disposition and to yield an inclination to follow Jesus, which you have as a husband, as well as your wife, that is how she submit to her husband. As she has that disposition to yield, that inclination to follow her husband, now she is to have that, excuse me, that disposition to yield, the inclination to follow Jesus, that's the way she follows her husband, that inclination, that disposition to yield to him, that inclination to follow him as he's a servant leader, verses 25 through 33. And then he gives a reason in verse 23. Why? For, it's a gar, you could translate that legitimately, because the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church. The body is himself its savior. And so there again, now this is a, today, it's extremely provocative, it's very controversial, but the word head, and I, I gave you the Greek term, it's kephale, and that Wayne Grudem, who's a theologian that I, I appreciate, has done a word study of this term, kephale, and he, he studied it in terms of New Testament Greek, he studied it in terms of Attic Greek, which is classical Greek, the Greek before the New Testament. 
And he said, and it's a powerful article and it is a part of the systematic theology. Every reference I found indicates that kephale means to have responsibility over, authority over someone or something. So again, notice the analogical comparison. The analogy is, as Jesus Christ is head of the church, which everybody agrees, that is a consistent teaching in the New Testament, as Jesus Christ is head of the church, the wife is head of the husband. Boy, I said that wrong. The husband is the head of of his wife. And so you say, oh my goodness. Well, again, what that means is that who has primary responsibility over the church? It's Jesus, the head. Who is the leader of the church? Jesus, the head. So Paul is saying, in God's economy of things, the husband has primary responsibility before God as the head of the house. Now again, what that means is fleshed out in verse 25 through 33. And, but again, you, you have these very difficult terms as far as the 21st century is concerned, submission and head, and it, it creates so much dissension that people often do not even take the time to really understand what does this mean and how does this work out in my life as a husband or as a wife. And so then he draws it together in verse 24. Now, as, here's this comparative analogy now, as Christ, as the church submits to Christ, so wives also should submit to their husbands in everything. So you have this this analogical comparison. As Jesus is head of the church, and as the church has that inclination to yield, a, a disposition to yield, an inclination to follow Jesus, so the husband is head of his wife, who has that disposition to yield and an inclination to follow his leadership. And so you have this unmistakable comparison of these two institutions. And you have this important, don't miss this, Paul's saying. I'm setting it up as an analogy for you to see clearly what the Lord wants in a marriage relationship. Okay, now, it's, it's, you have to kind of talk about these separately, because that's how Paul talks about them. But I want to go to 25 through 33, if it's all right, and then I'll take all your questions. If you have, maybe you don't have any, but I want to make sure we have time to go through both of these, and I want to come back and say quite a bit in conclusion to all this. Now, verse 25, he very specifically addresses husbands, and as I said at the beginning, three verses are are laid out for the wife, nine verses for the husband. Husbands, love your wives, and the word for love, and you're all familiar with that by now, but is agape, it's that self-sacrificial, other-centered love, but Paul makes it clear, (laughs) husbands, love your wives as, there's that comparative analogy again, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Okay, now, here again, that standard is the as the relationship that Jesus has to his church. How did Jesus love his church? He gave himself up for her. He died for her. He went to the cross for her. 
So Jesus, as the servant leader of the church, died for his church. So husbands, love your wives in that way. Now I want to remind you of something. All of this material flows out of verse 18. Be in the process of continually being filled with the Spirit. That's why I want to flesh out that continuous present. The importance of this is you can't pull this off if you do this in the flesh. You can't do this on your own. This is a dimension of being under the Spirit's control. So wives to submit, that's part of being filled with the Spirit. Husbands to love, that's part of being with the Spirit. The analogical comparison is Jesus. And then he gives a purpose clause in verse 26, that he, and that's Jesus, might sanctify her, that's the church, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot, wrinkle, or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blameless, and without blemish. And you know, so you have this extraordinary summary of the relationship of Jesus to his body, the church. The extent to which Jesus loved his church was to, to die for her, to cleanse her, to present her as holy. And so that is, in a way, how we should lead our wives. We should care for our wives. We should love our wives. We become part of the process of the sanctifying grace of God in her life. I want to talk about what that might mean here in just a minute. But laying this out, I mean, this is incredibly powerful. Most people, when they study this, all they look at is the term head in verse 23 and ignore what Paul is saying in 25 and following. I mean, this is not, no matter how you look at these verses, 25, 26, 27, this isn't dictatorial leadership. This isn't this is an authoritarian leadership. This is servant leadership, where the husband is constantly thinking about nurturing and caring for his wife in all areas of her life with the purpose that she might be presented to Jesus. Lord, I want to be a part of your sanctifying grace in my wife's life. I want to be a part of what you're doing in her life as well as my life. I don't want her to be angry at you, nor angry at me. I mean, go on and on and on. So this is an incredibly well-articulated, fleshed out to its maximum, the dimension of love a husband is to have for his wife. And I take you back to verse 18. We cannot do this without the Spirit's power, without his enablement to be under his control. And then verse 28, he goes on, okay? Not only, not only are we using the analogical comparison of Jesus loving his church, in the same way, verse 28, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Now that takes you back to the creation ordinance of God a one-flesh union. 
And we know that's what Paul has in mind, because look at verse 29 and 30, then actually into 31. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it, cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we're members of his body. Therefore, a man leaves his father and mother, holds fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And so now we begin to see the analogy, the second analogy that he's putting out in verse 28. He's taking us back to the creation ordinance, that when a husband marries his wife, or when a wife marries her husband, they become, and that verb tense is very clear, they are in the process of becoming one flesh. And so there's that constant separation from your mother and father. You're now creating a new family unit. You hold fast like glue to your wife, and the two become one flesh. So that one flesh principle defines by analogical comparison, the degree of love. How do I love my wife? As I love and care for my own body. What do I do with my own body? I, I cherish it. I nourish it. That's what you should do for your wife. That's the dimension of as you care and nourish for your own body, because she is now one with you. You are now one flesh, and that is not only sexual intercourse, that is the entire merging of two unique, distinct human beings, male and female, with distinct different emotional characteristics, physical characteristics, psychological characteristics. You're now merging into one. You maintain your own identity, but you're now one. And that's why Jesus says every time Jesus and every time Paul each one of them, when they talk about marriage, they take us back to the creation ordinance of God. Because that transcends time, that transcends culture, that transcends tradition, that, trans uh, that uh, transcends all kinds of, of unique fetishes that develop. And it's saying, husbands, love your wives, not only as Christ loved the church, but as you love your own body, because she is now one flesh with you. And as you care for and nourish and cherish your body, you are caring for, nourishing, and cherishing your wife. And so you've had, whoa. So when I begin to, to focus on this and think about this and try to apply this, selfishness has no part in a husband's relationship with his wife. Self-centeredness has no part in a husband's relationship with his wife. Self-indulgence has no part in the relationship of a husband with his wife. Because under the Spirit's control, we begin to be able to pull this off. It is impossible. To, that's why, men, you know this. The world outside of Christ, the world knows nothing of this. The world is into objectifying women, making women an object for a man's pleasure and desire. That is not what this is saying. Uh, the world is saying it's two autonomous individuals sort of coming together, cohabiting for a little bit, trying it out. But, you know, to break it down, that's no problem. That is not the way God's talking about it. The institution of marriage in the family is central to God's program. It's the first institution he's created. And Paul is defining here in a marvelous fashion the role responsibilities within this one 
flesh union. But he's not done. He does one other thing here. In verse 32, this mystery is profound. Now, all of you would amen to that. <laughs> but notice what he says. But I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. And you think, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're talking about a husband and wife in the context of marriage and role relationships and marriage. And you say, this is about Christ in the church? I remember many years ago when I was first really studying this for something I was going to do. I was back in Pennsylvania at that time. But studying to do something in my church, I came across this verse and I said, I have no idea what he's saying here. What in the world? Why is he shifting? He's saying, what I'm really talking about here is Christ in the church. That's really what I'm referring to. You think, whoa, wait a minute. But then the more I thought about it, and the more I meditated upon it, I looked back and read, the wife's relationship to her husband is defined as the relationship she has to Christ. The husband's relationship he has, responsibility he has to his wife, is the same as Christ and his church. And so you begin to see something. A biblically-centered, Christ-centered marriage is proclaiming a truth. The relationship of husband and wife, as defined here, under the control of the Holy Spirit, is a metaphor, an archetype, an example of the relationship of Jesus and his church. So there's something proclamational about marriage. There's something proclamational about how how a husband and wife relate to one another. And so you see, oh my. So when the world sees a God-centered, Christ-honoring marriage, the servant leader husband and his wife having that disposition to yield, the inclination to follow, and you see this incredible self-sacrificial love and this humility and dependence and one flesh union that God has sanctioned, you see something supernatural. And it is an archetype of Jesus and his church and the church relationship to Jesus. And you see, listen, men, I believe this with all my heart. There's more to marriage than we realize. God is... God has much more in mind here with marriage than just one little tiny dimension of it. What happens in the marriage bed? It's much deeper than that. It's much more important than that. It's, it's much more central to what God is doing than just the sexual dimension. Now, the sexual dimension is beautiful. God created it. I mean, that's not something that just, that God is the one who created this. And it is to be joyful and beneficial and fulfilling in every area, but it's much more than just a sexual. The one flesh union is the merging of two into one. Idiosyncrasies, uniqueness are maintained, but you're now one flesh. And that profound relationship models the relationship of Jesus and his church. Marriage has a proclamational, gospel-oriented ministry. And then, however, let one of you love his wife as himself, let the wife will see that she respects her husband. And so that as the husband leads as a servant, not only there's a submission, but there's respect.
And that is one of the reasons why in 2021, you go outside the larger, into the larger culture. You don't have very many good examples of a marriage. You really don't. You, you search and you scratch your head and you say, I don't really, I don't see any examples like this outside the church, but within the church, in, in the, your own individual churches, I'm pretty certain if many of you start to, you can think of some examples of a, of a marriage like this. Marriage is proclamational. And that's one of the reasons why young couples that just get married should for a time, if it's possible, be into a mentoring relationship with an older married couple who's lived this for a while, where they can see it, they can talk with them, they can be nurtured into understanding all dimensions of this kind of a relationship. And so what I've done here on this chart, and you have a copy of this in that packet that Glenn sent out, Glenn's the one who sent it out this week. But anyway, you see, now just work your way from left to right, the creation ordinance of God, that a man shall leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, and they shall forever now be in the, pro I mean, in terms of time, be in the process of being transformed the image, uh, uh, a one flesh union. And then you have the marriage roles, which we've just finished studying, which then is really an archetype, a metaphor, a model of Christ's relationship with his church. And so you see, whoa, that's why when I, when I, I don't do too many of these anymore, but when I would do a lot of marriage uh, uh, ceremonies, I'd officiate, I, oh, I never would marry somebody uh, if I hadn't had the chance to do the premarital counseling, or if I knew who was doing the premarital counseling. I feel very strongly about that. But I would always talk, I want your marriage to be an Ephesians 532 marriage. And I always give couples a book as the, the wedding gift and always write in the, the blank pages you open the book, may your marriage be an Ephesians 532 marriage. That's supernatural, spirit controlled, you're an archetype, a metaphor of how Jesus relates to his church and vice versa. <clears throat> and then this, you also, this is really complicated. It violates every major axiom of a good visual, has too much information on it. <laughs> but when you work through this, and you have a copy of this in, in the packet that, that we sent out to you, this just connects a husband's wife, the role of the wife in, in how each is to function, but in a very real sense, as this slide uh, iterates, returning us to Eden. In other words, returning us to the God-sanctioned, God-centered God ideal for marriage. And that we know that because it is a part of the creation ordinance of God. And so what genuine biblical Christianity does is it takes us back to the goal God has for marriage as as iterated in his creation work in Genesis 1 and 2. And so again, you know, I wanted to throw a lot at you here uh, at this time, and I know I've thrown an awful lot at you in the last 45 minutes, but this, men, to be blunt, this is not taught very well in the local church. And if it's in some local church, it's not even taught at all anymore. And that is tragic, in my judgment, anyway, because this language is very clear language. There's not a lot of ambiguity here. 
but it lays out something in the male, in the husband and wife relationship that is truly supernatural. And so now you, you've had about 45 minutes to try to digest all this questions that you'd want to ask me or anything you want me to review. I have a simple one. Um, at the Greek, the pre-biblical Greek is Attic, A-T-T-I-C, correct? Correct. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Can you can compare this with Peter, First Peter 3? They seem very similar. Oh, very much so. Yes, very much so. Now, in First Peter 3, Peter spends a lot more time dealing with um, and connecting how the wife not only relates to her husband, but how the wife then relates to, uh, you know, public worship services and how she adorns her body and all that kind of stuff and relates those two. And Paul does somewhat the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, but yes, very much so, Glenn. Okay. They, these do complement one another very well, yes. All right. Oh, man. Man, are you serious? You don't have any questions <laughs> or any comments or you want me to go over anything anymore? I, I'm um, on your um, on your materials, that very complicated slide that I really appreciated. There is a, a footnote in there for um, uh, love and respect. Yes, right. If uh, my uh, wife and I are voracious consumers of these kind of programs, oh, we've been good. through smallies programs and you know, everybody always asks us if there's trouble. And it's like, no, it's like maintenance. You know, yeah. Okay. So that love and respect program is really good. It's really yeah. simple. The the premise of it, it's not hard to understand, and it really, uh, t if you're having issues with conflict, that it really delves into uh, how the conflict cycle works and how to get out of it. Yeah. <clears throat> Yeah, that's, that's wonderful material, obviously, because that's where I got this. But it's wonderful material. And there's just, we live, it's really remarkable. It really is. We live in an, in an age when there is so much good material out there to help us to know how to be the wives and husbands in a Christian marriage that God's calling us to. I mean, it's, it's just, it's absolutely fabulous. And yet we continue to struggle with <laughs> what what marriage is supposed to look like and how we pull this off and this is that love and respect people i i love uh, uh, um, uh, there's a number of other really wonderful resources out there that can help us to listen you, that you are going to disagree is a given you have two individual people with their own idiosyncrasies their own unique aspects they're male and female, different in every chromosome of their body. They are going to disagree. And sometimes we heat it. How do you deal with that? How do, you, how do you manage and deal with that conflict in a marriage relationship? To go into a marriage and say, we're never going to disagree. There's never going to be conflict. You must be living on Pluto because you are going to. So how do you deal with it? And that there's some of the wonderful research. Norm Wright, um, he is now, um, I, I'm not sure if he didn't uh, go to be with the Lord, but he has written some tremendous books. One of my favorite books uh, that, that Norm Wright's put out is Communication, the Key to Your Marriage. And he talks about how important it is for a husband and wife to openly 
based on trust work for level five communication, where there's openness in your marriage. To the best of your ability, you're not hiding anything. You're not distorting or misrepresenting anything. You're openly communicating with one another at all levels. And that, that is only possible when there's trust for one another. That's one of the tremendous tragedies of adultery because adultery destroys the trust and destroys the possibility of openness and transparency. And when adultery occurs, to rebuild that is not impossible. I've worked with many couples over the years, but it's very hard work then. So, I mean, it's, it's, there's so many good resources out there for us to be the husband God is calling us to be, regardless of our age, regardless of how long we've been married. And, and there aren't wives in the class, so I'm not going to talk to them specifically. But there are also tremendous resources for, for both the wife and the husband, as well as the husband and wife together in the marriage relationship. I mean, it, it, it really, we are very blessed to live in this time when there are so many good resources out there. All right. Any other final questions? Going to move on then, unless I have any, or unless you have any. All right. Hearing none, I'm going to move on. Now, the the second relationship cluster that Paul deals with in terms of submission and then governing, remember all this is Ephesians 5.18, be under the control of the Spirit, is the relationship between children and their parents. And this is... Um, it's condensed. It's, it's only four verses, but like a lot of other things that we're studying in Ephesians, almost every word is important. So we're going to take our time with this. And so again, this is parent-child relationship. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And he's going to explain what he means by that in the next verse. But obey your parents in the Lord. Now that that little phrase in the Lord uh, becomes quite important because it's, it's telling us here that this, um, this little phrase in the Lord modifies, explains, fleshes out what obedience really means. That this, as, as the husband and wife's relationship are defined in the previous paragraph, this, this whole issue of being in the Lord there's, there's a, a dignity, there's an allegiance, there's a loyalty there. As you have a dignified, loyal, intimate relationship with the Lord, that is the kind of relationship you should have with your parents. In other words, your relationship with Jesus Christ becomes the framework for your relationship with your parents. And let's think about that for just a little bit. I know you've heard me say this before, but before you became a Christian, before you put your faith in Christ, your relationship with God was condemned sinner to the judge of the universe. You put your faith in Christ, that changes. Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. What is that new relationship? Heavenly Father to child of God. We 
become a member of the family of God when we put our faith in Christ. And so Paul is saying, in that relationship you have with the Lord, in the Lord, that should define how you think about obedience to your parents. So as he had done earlier with the husband and with the wife, as your relationship with Jesus and Jesus' relationship with his church and church's relationship, as that analogically sets up the comparison of how you relate to one another, kids, that's how you are to relate to your parents. You obey your parents with the same dignity and respect as you do the Lord, because now he is your heavenly father. You have earthly fathers, we have a heavenly father. Why? Because this is right. And then he defines, he takes us back to the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother, which I've talked about this before in the class. The Ten Commandments to me become an ethical framework of behavior. This is the important principle of authority. And honoring your father and mother and as Paul says, this is the first commandment with a promise, and then he tells us what the promise is, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. And again, he's taking you back to, to, to the book of Exodus, but the fifth commandment there in, in chapter 20. But he's saying that, again, this ethical principle transcends culture, transcends time, transcends all tradition. Honoring your parents as you honor and show respect and have dignity toward your parents, that is modeled by your respect and dignity and, and uh, honoring of the Lord. Those two go together. And again, it takes us back to you cannot do this without being under the control of the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 5.18. And of course, this this, too, is a very difficult thing to, to try to apply in 2021, because we live in a, in a society where, quite often, respect for parents is gone, and we have so many, quite tragic, actually, so many single-parent households, whatever the cause was, whatever the, the reason for it is, that's difficult. It is always a difficult situation when you have just a single parent family. And it's not impossible, but more and more, the more widespread we see this becoming, and it's becoming more and more widespread, the, the more difficult it is for this kind, this kind of, an of a set of instructions to be applied adequately. Because whether it's a single father or a single mother, the pressure on them to be both is extremely difficult, if not impossible, and the consequences of not doing what the Lord wants to do. And so it all hinges on how we interpret the ethical principle from commandment number five and apply it to the parent-child relationship, specifically the child-to-parent. And then he says, fathers, now I want you to notice that. Who has primary responsibility to see that discipline is done in the home. Fathers do not provoke. That word, uh, that word is exasperate. Do not exasperate your children to anger, but 
but bring them up in the discipline. It's a wonderful Greek word, paideia. Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, this doesn't mean that the mother is not to be involved in this, obviously, but again, it's assigning primary responsibility for this is with the father. And so one, if there's no father in the home, or two, you have a father who does not care about fulfilling his God-given responsibilities, that is not going to be good for the overall picture of the home. So in your discipline, fathers, don't exasperate your children to anger. Now, I don't think it takes you very long to think through what that means. So discipline is to be reasonable. Discipline is always restorative, not only punitive. You are not punishing your children. You are trying to restore your children. They have violated one of the key items of your household. They've disobeyed you or they violated one of the standards, whatever it is. Your goal is restorative, not punitive alone. You're not just singularly trying to punish your children. You are trying to restore your children. That's why he uses that term, paideia bringing them up in the discipline. It's restorative. It's not punitive. You want them to change their behavior. You want to instruct them so that they're learning what acceptable behavior is and what unacceptable behavior is. So in that discipline and instruction of the Lord, as the Lord disciplines and instructs us, we are to discipline and instruct our children. Now, how do you instruct your children in the Lord? The Bible, the centrality of the Bible in their lives. And that's why in, in so many of your churches, and it's true of my church, you have a children's ministry. And that ministry is divided into age groups because as children develop, they, they need a greater challenge. They've, okay, they're, they're no longer one or two-year-olds. They're three, four, or five-year-olds. Now they're beginning to get some instruction. They're beginning to learn content. And often a part of this can be Bible memory verses. We're getting the Word of God into their hearts. You know, my word have I hid in the heart that I might not sin against you, David says in Psalm 119. So all of this, all of this needs to be worked through. What does that mean for me? What does that mean? When my young son, my son was growing up, Jonathan, he's now 38, but when he was growing up, one of the things he loved, we got him a picture Bible. He loved that picture Bible. And it was how he first learned about the things of God as he read through in a picture Bible or cartoons and depictions of the major narratives as well as the teachings of the Bible. Today, again, we live in an age when there's so many resources to help us in bringing up our children in the restorative disciplinary paideia of God and the instruction of God. As God disciplines and instructs us, we are to discipline and instruct our children. So to the children, the primary responsibility in this role relationship is obedience, respect, maintaining the dignity and loyalty to my parents as I do to the Lord. And parents, fathers, you are the primary ones responsible for discipline. Make sure you don't exasperate your children, but positively. Negative is don't provoke or exasperate. Positive is bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And so the point, as 
is obedience to parents fosters self-discipline, produces stability and a long life. It's, a, it's like a proverb. And so Paul is laying out something that is profound here and how important these parent-child relationships are in the family and how central this is to what God is wanting to do. What does a family that honors God looks like? Here's a good start for husband-wife relationship, 22 through 33, the parent-child relationship, 6, 1 through 4. All right. Are you with me? Thank you. All right. Any questions before we leave, uh, before we leave this? And what I mean is leave class because it's a, oh my goodness, it's getting late. I'm over time. I kept you over. I'm sorry. Is everybody with me? All right. I've done most of the talking. There are a couple of questions, but let me pray then and I'll let you go. And I'll see you next week, and we'll, we'll continue in our study of what a spirit-controlled life looks like. Next week, we'll deal with, in the 21st century, employee-employer relationship. In the ancient world, it was master-slave relationship. Father, thank you for the Word of God. It challenges us. And today, we've really been challenged as we were reminded of the parent, of the parent-child relationship, as well as the husband-wife relationship. But Lord, it is very clear. This is all governed by Ephesians 5.18. To be under the control of the Spirit, we cannot pull this off as husbands or as parents, uh, or even grandparents to a degree, but we cannot do this on our own. We need the empowerment and enablement of the God, the Holy Spirit, who indwells us. Thank you for providing that resource of God indwelling us. Thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you for being willing to go to the cross for us, Lord. And Heavenly Father, thank you as our Heavenly Father. We are now your children, and we accept your discipline and instruction as we grow in this wonderful, sanctifying process of becoming more and more like Jesus. Help us to be sensitive to our kids, to not exasperate them or provoke them, but to nurture them and bring them along in their walk with you. So I commit each man to you in each home that's represented here, extended families, I'm sure. But Lord, may we be a beacon of light in this very dark world to represent you. Enable us to do that as strong men of faith in Christ's name. Amen. See you next week, man. Thank you. Have, Have a great day. Bye-bye.